Matthew chapter 14, we'll read the first 13 verses. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus." Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word this morning, and we do pray for understanding as your Holy Spirit guides and directs in our teaching, quickens our hearts, and helps us to understand. And Father, we pray all these to your honor and glory. Amen. I've been uh, looking at this passage for some three weeks or so as we took a couple weeks away from the series for Easter uh, celebrations. But... I gotta admit, three weeks ago I wasn't overly excited about preaching this passage, and to be honest, even as we came into today, even though it's my principle to preach straight through, so I cover things that are uncomfortable to me and things of the Word of God that we might not otherwise hear. I was tempted to, uh, just kind of look at the circumstances of the time, use it as an introduction into the next passage, and then move on. But as I got thinking through it and researching and studying it a little bit, and I started reading about the life of, of Herods, the Herods are always kind of hard to keep in line, because there's Herod the Great, which is actually the father of this Herod. His term ended just after the time that they put the babies to death, and then his kingdom was divided up. The word Tetrarch, which is what Herod Antipas here is referred to as, Tetrarch is, means a ruling of a fourth, a rule of quarter of the empire. Because what happened after Herod the Great was rather than handing down his whole kingship to one of his sons, he decided to divide it up. And so he divided it up between Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And so he divided it up three ways. Now after Herod died, Antipas challenged it. He wanted to be the sole king. And he always had that lofty ambition. He wanted to be king, not tetrarch. But uh, he never he never made it. But you know what? As you look at their family, their family is a mess. At times they had their own children executed because of threats of them rising up underneath them. And we see in the passage here that Antipas would take his brother Philip's wife. When he went to Rome for a visit one time, he was out there in Rome and he and and Herodias got together, and so he came back and divorced his wife and took his brother Philip's wife to be with him. And later on, his nephew, Herod Agrippa, is going to tell the new emperor, Caligula, that Antipas is stirring up a rebellion. And so Antipas is going to end up exiled to France and then later even to Spain before he would die. And so the whole family is just one of treachery and death. At times they kill their wives, their own children, to protect their, their rule of reign. It's just a mess. And you know, I find myself reading through that and thinking, man, you know, big banquets and heads on platters and killing your own family members. And I think, where are you people from? North Korea? As you can see, you know what, I start thinking, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were looking at headlines about uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un having his own brother killed with nerve agents and to protect his rule of authority within his own kingdom. And the way we look across today and we look at ISIS and the things that they're doing in North Korea and the threats that they are making and, and Iran and, the, and, and Russia and the things that are stirred up there. And now China's being persuaded to get involved to try to put some reins on Kim Jong-un. And you just look at all the things going around in our world today and I think, boy, it hasn't really changed that much 
since the days of uh, John the Baptist here. And that's what, as we look at this passage here today, what are we seeing? Why did God reveal this to us? Why did He keep this part of history for us to go through and to learn about? Well, I think what we're seeing here is we're seeing the clash of kings. Just like in our society today, we're seeing world rulers uh, making bold threats and world rulers using finances as leverage to, to try to control other nations and control other peoples and, and other people trying to promote their independence and through nuclear armament and, and all these things going on. We're seeing a real clash of kings in our day right now. Well, you know what? We're seeing a clash of kings in the days of Jesus and John the Baptist as well. In fact, as we look at the family of Herod, with uh, Herod the Great, he looked at ending the life of Christ in his infancy. Didn't work. Herod Antipas kills John the Baptist. And Herod was very curious about Christ. He had some fear and some anxiety over him. He also had this desire to see him. And the Pharisees told Jesus one day he has a desire to put you to death. And Jesus says, you tell that fox. In fact, it's kind of interesting. He uses the word vixen there. Actually, it's, it's feminine for fox. So I think he might have been alluding to Herodias <laughs> being the one that called the shots there. And um, he says, you tell that fox that, you know what, today and tomorrow I'm doing miracles. And then on the third day. So in other words, he's saying, at my time schedule, I'll be back in Jerusalem. And he went on to say, it's not right for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. So <laughs> I'll be meeting you in Jerusalem eventually. When Jesus is brought before Pilate, and they're trying to have him crucified. Pilate really didn't want anything to do with it. You remember he tried to wash his hands of it, which wasn't effective. And he sent Jesus to Herod, kind of as a gift to Herod. He knew Herod wanted to hear Jesus, but hadn't been able to. And so Jesus was sent to Herod. And the Bible says that when Jesus stood before Herod, Christ was silent. He would not give him the the honor of addressing him. Christ was just silent. So Herod never did get to actually hear anything from Jesus. Well, as we look at it, that's what we're seeing, is we're seeing the clash of kings. Herod and, and the Herod family, out of fear of losing their own power, opposed Christ, killed John the Baptist, wanted to see Jesus dead, tried to kill him in his infancy, and they're opposing Jesus. But Jesus, of course, fulfilling the mission when he came to and going to the cross, uh, comes out on the victorious side. But if we look at this clash of kings and we look into the life of Herod here, I'd like to notice that there's four different factors, factors that um, fueled, factors that fueled Herod's evil behavior, things that he got caught up in that that led to the actions that he followed through with. One of the factors that fueled his evil behavior was what I would call superstition. And that is because as we look through the passage, he's certain. There are different people saying different things about Jesus at this time. In fact, when we, even when we get to Matthew chapter 16, a couple chapters away, Jesus is going to ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? I can't wait to get to that passage. Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Some people say that you're uh, Elijah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. So they all have lofty elevations of you. And then he asks, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter steps forward and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So at this time, you have people with different opinions of who Jesus is and, and why, why is He able to do all these miraculous things. He's got to be somebody out of the ordinary to be able to do the miraculous things. So he's either the Messiah. We know that Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah. So maybe it's Elijah uh, risen from the dead. Maybe it's one of the other prophets. You know, maybe it's Jeremiah or one of those guys. And so they're they're saying it's got to be something amazing that's happening here. Well, Herod he decides he knows exactly who it is, and he goes with John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now. Why would I call that superstitious? Well, I call it superstitious because the Bible tells us in John chapter 10 and verse 41 that John the Baptist never did any miracles. 
He never did any miracles, but John the Baptist told people, I am not the light. I'm here to bear witness to the light. I am not the Messiah. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. I'm here, the one here getting, getting the path ready for the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. But Herod, he decides who it is. He says, I know who it is. This is none other than John the Baptist risen from the dead. I think that he, the reason he thinks that it would be John the Baptist is because even though John the Baptist didn't do any miracles, having risen from the dead, he now would be an extraordinary individual that would be able to do miracles now that he's risen from the dead. But like I said, it's all based just on superstition. John, John never did any signs, as, as the Gospel of John calls the miracles. He never did any miracles. He just pointed to Christ who did the miracles. You know, when you think about the facts, how would that even line up? Jesus and John would have been alive at the same time. Jesus' ministry was starting, and John would send word from prison to Jesus through his disciples saying, are you the guy or should we look for someone else? And so they were, they were on the earth simultaneously, Jesus already ministering, and John the Baptist finishing his ministry while Jesus was beginning his. How could he be John the Baptist right, raised from the dead? But you know what's happening here is Herod is interpreting this not in line with reality. He's ter- interpreting it with his own circumstances. And we'll get to that in just a couple of moments. But he's looking at that through his, through his own circumstances in dealing with who this person is. But he says it's John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist never did any miracles while he was alive. Why would he be doing them now that he's dead or resurrected from the dead? You know, it's like a conversation I had with somebody one time. We were working on something together and, and a friend of mine asked me what I thought of something. They said, I think that if you took all the people that were like sick and had cancer and all that kind of stuff and you took them down to some place like Fatima. You know, Fatima is a place where the three little peasant girls when they were nine years old supposedly saw vision, visions of Mary and were told to pray the rosary. And now they've made a statue and thousands upon thousands of people go there for a pilgrimage to go see the Our Lady of Fatima. And they said, you know what, I think if we took all, the, all those people, loaded them up, all the sick people, take them down to Fatima, that they'd be healed. What do you think? And I said, well, <clears throat> I guess my thoughts go this way. When I read through the Bible, I don't see one place where Mary did a miracle. She was used in a very extraordinary miracle, giving birth to the Messiah, but there's not one place where she laid the hands on the sick and they were healed or caused a blind person to be able to see. Or I said, so I guess my thoughts are if she didn't do it while she was alive, why would she do it now that she's dead? You see the whole point, just like even at Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine, Mary was actually there for that, but you know what she did? She told people, go do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That was her whole involvement in the whole thing. And so when I look at those kind of things, I, I think that appears to me to be kind of superstitious that somebody, now that they're, they're dead and people are elevating them beyond the level that the Bible elevates them, you get superstition starts to kick in and you start to think that amazing things are happening or going to happen and, and it's just superstitious and that's what Herod was. Herod was very superstitious about John the Baptist. Oh, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead and now he's able to do all these amazing things because he's risen from the dead. Why is Herod so sure that that's it? The reason that he's so sure that that's it would come into our second factor, I would I would portray, and that is that he's also dealing with the realm of guilt. He's dealing with the realm of guilt. He is so sure that this is John the Baptist risen from the dead because he put John to death. He is guilty for the murder, no trial, just a beheading. 
he is guilty of the murder of John the Baptist. And so I think that that's why he's so sure that this is John the Baptist, because he's not, in, he's not interpreting the, the events according to reality. He's not looking at the fact that Jesus and John were both alive and serving at the same time. He's not looking at any of the, the facts of the matter. He's interpreting the events in light of his own circumstances. And his own circumstances are, I put John the Baptist to death, and you know what? Herod's life, maybe even more so than the rest of us, kind of revolved around him. And so he was interpreting the deeds of Christ, not by what they actually were, but he was interpreting them by his life or by his circumstances that he was in. So he was feeling guilt for putting John the Baptist to death in the prison. And so in in feeling that guilt, when Jesus comes around doing these amazing things, Herod is like, oh, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. You know, it's, it's kind of like when we when somebody does something around us and we say, oh, they did that because of this in our life. The fact of the matter is, it might not have had one thing to do with you. It might not have anything to do with us. I remember reading a long time ago, I don't even remember where I read it, but it's been very helpful in my life. They said, you know what? People would not worry so much about what other people are thinking of them if they'd all just realize how seldom they are. And so I decided most of the things that are going on in somebody else's life probably have nothing to do with me. And so when I run into somebody and they're, all, and they're kind, of, kind of crabby, I don't just assume that I caused it. No, maybe I am sometimes and don't even realize it. I think that's what Herod is doing. Herod is seeing these circumstances that are going on around him. And of course, it all has to be about Herod, right? And so that's how he interprets it. These things that are happening, this is because of me. Because of what I did to John the Baptist, that's why all this is happening. It's all revolving around Herod. Because he's feeling he's dealing with the guilt for that situation. And you know what? When we're dealing with guilt, when we're struggling with things, that often happens in our life. Well, oh man, that's because of this. Or we start attributing motivations to things that may not be motivations. We start making cause and effect connections that may not be there. And, uh, and that's exactly what Herod's doing at this time. He's sure that this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. But that interpretation really has more to do with what's going on in Herod's life than it has what's going on, what's going on in reality. Not only is he dealing with guilt, he's dealing with a lot of fear. He's dealing with a lot of fear. In fact, this one, the one commentator that I read, he kind of put this one over, over all of them, over most of the situation of what Herod is going through. When you look at what Herod's doing, as we look at the passage, it says that at the time that he heard about the fame of Jesus, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that is why... These miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So as we start looking at this whole overall thing, it's amazing how many things Herod is afraid of. Herod is afraid of the people. Because he, he wants to put John the Baptist to death. It's kind of an interesting relationship between John the Baptist and Herod as we compare the three Gospels, Luke, Mark, and Matthew. But we learn that Herod would go and listen to John. He was curious about John. But at the same time, he wanted him killed because he's a thorn in his side. And so he had this kind of fascination with him, but at the same time wanted him gone. But he's afraid of the people. He's afraid of John the Baptist. That's why he throws him into prison. I think he's also afraid of Herodias. That's why, also part of the reason that he throws him into prison. He's afraid of the people because the people esteem him to be a prophet, so he doesn't want to act too drastic toward John the Baptist or the people might be revolting against him. He's got a kind of a tough job to begin with because he's ruling over an area that is a Jewish population. But he's an Idumean, which means he's a descendant of Esau, which the Jewish people don't like ruling over them. 
because Jacob was the chosen one, or not Esau. So he's got, a, he's got his work cut out for him. Now, he doesn't really care about the Jewish people. He was really a pretty self-oriented man. But then as the events go on, the girl comes out and dances for the group. And he gives this oath, I'll give you whatever you want. In fact, Mark says he said to the, up to the half of his kingdom. So he gives her this huge check that she can write on, on his account. And she, of course, was under the influence of, of her mother. By the way, this, she is not Herod's daughter. She's Philip's, his brother's daughter with Herodias. And so she comes out and does this dance and everything and then says, you know what I want? I want right here, right now. So she wants him while he's still under the influence of alcohol and the pressure of all the people looking on to fulfill the promise of bringing John the Baptist's head on a platter. So if Herod is afraid of what the crowd would think if he breaks his oath. He's afraid of, of the, the oath himself that he gave and the, the people, his guests that are there. He's afraid of everything. It's all about appearance for Herod. It's about keeping power, which he was able to do for 42 years. At this point, when he beheaded John, he'd been in power for 32 years. But when you look at all the manipulation and everything that's going on in this, in this passage, he's dealing with a tremendous amount of fear. He's reacting to everything out of fear of what this that multitudes might think out of fear of what's going to happen if John the Baptist is able to keep proclaiming his message, fear in his relationship with Herodias, fear about keeping the oath or not keeping the oath with the group of people that's there. Everything's made out of fear. The Bible teaches us that if we're going to operate in the fear of man, that our life is going to be a mess. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. You know, in the, in the Bible, we're supposed to fear one person, really, and one person only, and that's God. We're supposed to have the fear of God in us and not the fear of man. God's supposed to direct our actions. God's supposed to direct our words. Let the fear of God control our behaviors and the things that we're involved in and our relationships. Not the fear of man. I had a professor when I was in college, and he, he shared with us on at least one occasion, probably more than once, because he had all these little tidbits of wisdom that he collected over his years of life and ministry, and he'd always share them with us. And whenever he had a chance to talk to you, he was always trying to plug something good into your life. And he was just a great guy. But I remember him telling me one time, he said, when I raised my kids, he says, I always told them this, you just got to be focused on pleasing God. He says, if you please God, you're going to please all the right people. And I thought about that. I thought, you know what, that makes, that makes sense. If you're pleasing God, then other people that are godly are going to be pleased with what you do as well. So you don't really have to worry about those. And if you're pleasing God, the people that are not pleased with your life, well, you don't really want to be pleasing those people. So if they're not pleased, that's okay too. So it really boils down to one thing, please God. And that's what the Bible does with the word fear. We're supposed to fear God and not man. The Bible says if you fear man, you're going to bring a snare. And that's exactly what Herod had in his life was a snare. Him trying to keep all these different groups of people happy or keep his image up to a certain level brought real snare. In fact, you know what he accomplished? None of it. He was constantly trying to be this great king. He was constantly trying to fill the shoes of his of his father, Herod the Great, and he never was able to do it. He was only given a little section and made a tetrarch rather than be king. He never got to be king. In fact, he has gone down his history as a ruthless, cold, self-indulgent leader. You know what he's known the most for? His own luxurious lifestyle. That's his claim to fame, was how much he was able to indulge himself in his life. Can you imagine that? Be a public servant. That's what you're supposed to be as a leader. Be a public servant for 42 years, and in the end, history books will write of you, he served himself well. That's his claim to fame. 
as we look through it, we're not supposed to fear man. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 7, he says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. So we're not supposed to fear man, but we are supposed to fear God. The wisest king, other than Christ himself, that ever lived was Solomon. Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an amazing book. You look through Ecclesiastes and you got Solomon, who's a person that has all the power you can imagine, all the wealth that you can imagine, and the wisdom that you can imagine. And from those things, with those things at his disposal, he sets out to find the purpose of life. And he tries all of them. He tries knowledge. He becomes uh, more and more educated. He tries accomplishment. He builds things. He accomplishes things. He tries relationships. A thousand and all. If you, if you count add together his wives and concubines. He tries everything. He tries uh, pleasure. Indulging himself with pleasure. And he tries doing all those things. And when you get to that point, you realize, is this guy really as wise as we thought he was? All those things, he comes back around at the end. He finds himself where he started. When he started, he was humble before God, and he just asked for wisdom so that he could do a good job for God. In the end, after trying wealth and pleasure and accomplishment and all those things, Solomon says, this is what I found to be the purpose of life. At the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Psalm chapter 118, verse 6 and it's quoted also in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. It says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. It's that focus that my teacher, Dr. Taloyan, was talking about. You're pleasing God. You're pleasing all the right people. The Lord is on my side. I'm pleasing Him. That gives Him the ability to not fear what man can do to me. That's how we accomplish it, by trust in the Lord. A good example of that was Job. Job was described as that way several on several occasions. At the beginning of the book of Job, it says that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And that's, those are, that's something that happens at exactly the same time. You cannot fear God without turning away from evil. But it says this is the description of Job. He's somebody who feared God and thus turned away from evil. That's exactly how God would describe Job when he would talk to Satan in chapter 1 verse 8 and chapter 2 verse 3. It says and the Lord said to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil?" He would use that twice in describing Job to Satan, somebody who fears God. Well, when we get to the end of the book of Job, or close to it, when we get to chapter 28 and verse 28, it says, And he said to man, talking about God speaking to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Herod feared people. And look at all the evil that it led him into. It led him into an incestuous relationship with Herodias, who was his his sister-in-law and his niece, actually, by the way. She was the daughter of his, one of his other brothers. It led him into murder. led him into all kinds of wickedness, the fear of people. He was always struggling to try to keep hold of what he had, his little kingdom, and it did him no good. Well, lastly, we also see as a motivation in his life was his lust. As we look through, down through the passage, and as one commentator pointed out to the daughter, here, this is probably a 12 to 14 year old girl, comes and dances before the group and pleases Herod, and he offers to give 
them something. And, and as one commentator says, look, there's nothing specifically in the passage that mentions that it was an inappropriate dance, that it was a promiscuous dance. They said, but if you look at the character of the individuals, it, it would not be a stretch to go there. I, I do think, though, as we look at the passage, we do have some indication that it was a very inappropriate dance. Uh, one is by the interpretation of the word pleased. When it says that Herod would, was pleased with the dance, uh, that is a word that is, uh, was often used as a, use, a euphemism of arousal. And so it's, it's probably not just talking about, oh, he was happy, he was delighted. It was a much more perverted understanding of what he was going through at that time. Uh, also, when you look at the level in society that dancing girls were, they were down there. And so that probably is not, would not have been considered wholesome entertainment. And then lastly, there's a Latin phrase that the meaning of that Latin phrase means Herod's birthday that became used as a term to describe very promiscuous celebrations. And so those things combined, I think, give us a pretty good picture that it was a lustful situation, and that Herod was making his decisions based on not only his, his fear and his superstition and his guilt, but also with the lust or the passion of the moment as well. And that fits very well with Herod's lifestyle. Herod's lifestyle was a lifestyle of debauchery. It was a lifestyle of just seeking uh, pleasure in in many different areas. You know, when you look at that from Herodias' standpoint, how in the world could you have your daughter do that? She knows Herod. How in the world could you put your own daughter in a position like that? When I think of the, the daughter as well, how gross to think of your stepdad looking at you in that way. It's just uh, the whole the whole picture is just is just sickening, but you know what? That's the level of depravity that people stoop to when they run away from God. It's a level of depravity that people stoop to when they are trying to hang on to what they have when they're trying to be the God in their life, control their environment that they live in. When I think of Herodias and the manipulation and the efforts that she went through that would even involve her daughter Salome, it's it's astounding. Herod was a very wicked person. There's no, never any shortage of those. You look down through through history and up into present day, there's you always have this. You always have abuses of power. You always have manipulation. You always have political maneuvering. I can't believe when you watch the news today and see all the different things that happen by by leaders around the world and by groups around the world. You know, ISIS, whether it's ISIS stepping up to take claim for some tragic happening, for some, some terror attack, or whether it's testing missiles or what the deal, they're always saying, well, is this a, is this a real thing or are they sending a message? Are they trying to, to make this happen over here by doing this over here? And, and, you know, I was watching the news the other day and they said, is all of our focus on this over here making us miss something over here? And man, you just think, is it all bait and switch or what is, what is all going on? It's manipulation. And that's what, as we look at this passage, is no different during the time of Christ. Right now in our day, we're having the clash of kings out there in our world. And who knows what it's headed for, other than we know some things. In Christ's day, the same thing was going on there. Herod trying to hold on to his kingdom. And because of his superstition, guilt, fear, and lust, he would, be, would bring him into a lot of evil in his life. He's coming up against the king of kings, and this battle isn't over yet. Christ in his silence won a victory for us. But next time he comes back, it won't be in silence. And that's when we see the fulfillment of his victory. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for, we thank you for Jesus Christ giving us deliverance from our sins and, and, uh, and even from ourselves. Lord, we also recognize within 
within Herod, uh, extreme as an example as it is, but also we recognize the tendency and where, we're le- where we drift to when left to our own devices. We recognize the depravity of man that is bound up uh, within humanity. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the redemption uh, from that. We thank you for Jesus Christ coming and going silently to that cross to lay down his life on our behalf so that we could be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn not only from the positive examples of the past, but the negative ones as well. And we pray that you would help us to avoid uh, making decisions that would lead us into superstition or based on guilt or fear or lust. But Lord, that we would fear you only. And whereas the fear of man brings a snare, the fear of God, well, that's wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to, to fear Only you. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.